Welcome to the B&E Podcast with Brandon Colby-Cook and Evan Schulte. Exploring the creative process and finding the balance between artistry and industry. Entirely uncut and unscripted. So serious Sunday, Evan, and we have a guest. We have a guest, we have a beer, and we have a conversation that will be had. <laughs> Which we don't know what it'll be. Yeah. <laughs> so our guest today is Matt Gibbs, and he is a landscape architecture, architect, architect, landscape architect. Um, anyway, uh, so funny story how Matt and I met. We were at Pemberton Music Festival, driving home. We ended up staying till like, like way after the festival, last day. And, you know, he was walking along the road, sticking out his thumb, and uh, we ended up driving him back to Whistler, and we all had dinner together, and he turned out to be an amazing guy, and so I was like, hey, you need to be on this podcast. So, uh, yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, about getting into architecture, and, and I don't know, introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, <laughs> so that was five days ago. We headed home from Pemberton, so a little uh, rundown, but uh, we ended up meeting there and talking about kind of some of my background in landscape architecture. One of the unique things that uh, you're really excited about was my project that I put together for my master's thesis. Uh, I really wanted to look at how we could explore building better environments. Living in Vancouver, I was really inspired by this walkable lifestyle that exists here, which is a stark contrast from where I'm from uh, in Edmonton, which is the one of the most auto-oriented cities in Canada. And there... Um, you're not a real person unless you have a car, which is a contrast from here. <laughs> so uh, I tried to apply that all together and uh, ultimately put together a project that I titled The Freezeway, a proposal for a year-round greenway, re- retrofitting an old empty railway corridor that's pretty empty and abandoned in Edmonton that's all flat and unused and stretches all the way into the downtown core. And if they turn that into a bike lane that was then... Uh, available to be frozen over in the winter, they could have a skating route that would allow people to skate to work, school, uh, or the hockey game, making it a much more exciting city known for more than just a crappy mall. So Yeah, no, <laughs> totally. And it's super cool. I mean, there's a couple of videos online, which we'll link to this, uh, on, at least on our website. Um, but yeah, the freezeway, uh, you know, I watched them and, and the whole idea of just skating around, you know, like imagine doing the you know, the seawall, but like on ice skates or something like mm-hmm. that'd be so much fun. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a really cool idea. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, the other day we were actually, we've been hanging out a lot since, um, since the Pemberton trip, but, uh, we were sitting on your deck there chatting a bit about it. And one of the other points that I thought we'd talk a little bit about is, is architecture. Cause, um, you know, I don't know if the audience knows this, but I was going to be an architect. I was in this advanced drafting and design program when I was 16 and, um, then I went away that summer and I made my first film and that kind of filmmaking won my heart. And so I dropped architecture and decided to pursue that. But um, it's always kind of had a soft spot in my heart, you know. But anyway, we were talking the other day over beers and we were talking about how, you know, 5% of it is creative and the other nine, 95% of it, you're pushing lines. So I, th- I figure that's a topic we can kind of get into because I think that relates a lot to film. It relates yeah. a lot to acting. It relates a lot to music. I mean, Bono even said like, I'm on stage 5% of the time and the other 95% of the time I'm doing the marketing and getting us on stage. Yeah. So, um, and I think when we're artists, we get into this for that 5%, right? And, uh, and not, we're not always told that when we get into it, we kind of imagine it, I think being 95% on stage Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's actually, you know, the the total opposite. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Yeah, well, and that, that certainly was my experience, too, coming out into the industry. And I was pretty dismayed to find that out after doing three years of a master's. I went and I, I did my undergrad in a general design degree and then moved on to a master's degree. And then when I couldn't find work with a general design degree, then moved on to specializing, going through a three-year master's program in landscape architecture, spent the entire time focusing on design projects, pitching ideas, sketching out and giving presentations uh, on these projects. And then you come out and uh, that bear next to no resemblance to what you do. Mm. And I, I think it really does a massive disservice. I know um, uh, it's a super exciting industry, but it has a really high turnover rate in terms of uh, people because I think a lot of people weren't really warned about this kind of scenario that uh, how limited the role is on that. And and for me, uh, you spend so much of the time doing contract management. Uh, that is by far half the uh, um, battle with any project and you only see uh, occasionally the pretty sketches that come out at the end that are a result of just one person of a of a extensive extensive multifaceted team and uh, yeah unless you're willing to stick it out it, and in some of the more conventional offices here for it it kind of seems like a decade uh, then uh, you um, can kind of be stuck down this road. And so a lot of people are starting their own businesses, do their own thing. But uh, yeah, it was pretty rude awakening for me to find that out and then be locked into the kind of student loans associated with that. Right. Um, really kind of limiting other options to kind of pivot and do other things. And and it's, I, I hope it's not a long-term thing for the industry. I, I, I really do think landscape architecture is poised to solve a lot of the problems in the world. But uh um, right now it's kind of, uh, it's very infantile industry, relatively speaking, whereas architecture has been around since, you know, the, the pyramids were built. Whereas, uh, they say that landscape architecture was around since Olmsted built Central Park only a hundred years ago. Right. And so it doesn't have that millennia, uh, or mil- multiple millennia, uh, to fall back on in terms of, um, industry reputation, value from a public standpoint and things like that. So... Right, uh, but I'm optimistic things are going to get better, and I don't want to dissuade anybody from uh, choosing that as an industry because it is a super exciting profession. But yeah, for me, I'd like to really tackle like what would it take to uh, reshape uh, the way the offices run these days. And I, and I think for me, it's really fascinating to witness the kind of generation gap that's that's going on between uh, the very old guard mentality and old school mentality of like, well. Uh, Saturday's your day off. So yeah, why are you complaining or asking me for anything different than that? Whereas uh, people these days, a, a lot of the younger generations realize when we're working, especially at times, a lot of overtime, like why am I not having the flexibility to go uh, take more time off and things like that? So I think it's only a matter of time until that changes because uh, I, I think uh, because that is such a high value to the younger generations that uh, I think it's a matter of time until an office provides that because that office model would be infinitely superior in terms of attracting talent. Right. So, um, that, that leaves me optimistic for the future about that small frustration of mine to be changing in the industry. Yeah. So there's a few, there's a few challenges with it. You were also saying that with landscape architecture, there's a, like, you don't, like, a, you don't necessarily need a landscape architect to, to, to do a project, but yeah. you do need a, what's the other, what's the other, um, ar- architect you need? Uh, uh, like engineers, engineers and right. things like that. Yeah. You can't, 
you don't really have a building without the electrical, plumbing, and other mechanical systems. Right. Uh, so or structural. kind of an add-on, really, yeah. in a way, at this point. And when any, and when any project goes forward, there, no budget ever comes in on, t- on, uh, on track. And so it's usually it, the cost gets cut out of the landscape contract right. because like, oh, we can come back in and do that later, whereas you can't come in and do the plumbing as easily later. And so yeah. um, if I was a little more forward thinking in, in uh, selecting of a career, I would have considered the challenge that that poises mm-hmm. uh, to being a valued professional in, in, in whatever industry you kind of chose. Well, you know, it's funny because, I mean, architecture and film are so Mm -hmm. similar, Mm -hmm. you know, producing at least, because Mm -hmm. uh, the budget gets cut because you go over budget on a film or whatever, you're trying to figure out where to put the money or you get a bigger actor and you got to give more money to that actor. And so where do you pull from the budget? And you usually pull from the departments that you don't value as much, right? Mm -hmm. And I think right now, like, we're in a time where the world is only beginning to start to value more of our you know, like, um, it's not as, I think things used to be a little bit more functional, you know, like, like with architecture was a little bit more about function. Now it's a lot more about aesthetics and it's about the experience of things, um, which I think is a great thing, but I don't think, um, everywhere in the world is caught up with that. You know, there's certain cities which are really beautiful because they have landscape architecture, Mm -hmm. but there's other cities like, you know, especially some of the cities I've been to in the States where it's purely functional. It's like crazy. Yeah. It's like, yeah. there's almost no, just no visual beauty yeah. really <laughs> anywhere. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 And there, and the people show up and, and they work in like, you know, a downtown core and then, you know, past 6 PM at night, yeah. it's a ghost town mm-hmm. yeah. kind of thing. You know, I, I've been to some cities like that and it's, mm-hmm. and having lived in Vancouver for most of my life, it, it spooks. It's a spooky thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because you know, you walk yeah. around downtown Vancouver, like there's just, there's people everywhere. Yeah. Right. Um, but you know, I, I, this is so interesting what you're saying about, about this field because yeah, like I can understand how, how at this point in time, it's something that is, is overlooked as maybe somewhat undervalued, but I also see within what you're saying, how how this is going to become something that is more and more and more mm-hmm. and more important, mm-hmm. especially as, you know, so many, so many people are moving to cities. Yeah. Now, you know, like there's, there's less keeping people in smaller communities now. And yeah. so like the, everything is starting to become more centralized, but people still, still want to have, you know, beauty around them. People mm-hmm. still want to have, you know, parks. And I, I imagine this is stuff that you're involved with. Yep. I'm, I'm just guessing, yep. here, but yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that that's, that's extraordinary. Like that's, yes, that's a, an incredible thing to, to be doing because like to, for people to connect to nature, I mm-hmm. mean, I think it's always so important. Like, yep. We're so blessed here in, in Vancouver, yeah. um, by the amount of nature that we have around us. Um, but yeah, like a place like Edmonton, like I, I was born in Saskatchewan. Okay. Um, so I'm familiar with, you know, the prairies to a, to a certain degree. Um, and I have been to Edmonton many, many, many years ago, but it is, 
uh, a very sort of a, a function city as I remember. Not that it doesn't yeah. have necessarily pretty have, industrial, have pretty some, functional, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. But it is uh it, it does it is right along like a river there and mm-hmm. like it has some some of those things going for it and all yeah. that. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mean I'm not saying this to be like any sort of like crapping on Edmonton because it's no, I, no, I, no. I I I hear Edmonton is a is a great city and it's just I haven't been there. Well in the such history a long time. of Edmonton is is uh, somewhat of an industrial city. I mean it's it's um it's based on, you know, like it, its economy is based a certain way. Yeah. And a lot of cities are built out of the way their economy yeah. is based. It doesn't yeah. mean that it's like a, yeah. a bad city. It's just, that's, you know, everything's born from a certain place. Every city in the world was born mm-hmm. out yeah. of a certain need that, you know? Yeah. And so I think like, you know, you have, uh, Vancouver is just, um, you know, and, and it's a top city today because, um, because it's so, you know, international and, and aesthetics have been a huge thing for yeah. the city. Whereas, I think maybe in some of these other cities, you know, aesthetics were not really as important, but, mm-hmm. but that's, that's, I think what's happening is the world's kind of catching up with that a little bit more, you know? Yeah. When yeah. I, yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, I see a big difference too. Um, took me a long time to understand why Vancouver looks so different from Edmonton too. And there's, there's so many different factors, but one of the large things that I didn't really appreciate was when you have, uh, it was one of the things that I learned, um, early in my program was that, uh, the biggest difference was when you have cities with containment boundaries, like Vancouver, that is wrapped by the ocean on three sides, it really forces you to use that space really well. Mm. And so uh, most of these developments are like in the downtown area. Those have been ripped up and torn down at least three or four times. Whereas in the prairies, what you're looking at is the first phase of development. So mm-hmm. uh, those have not been torn down three or four times because that land is in is valuable. They can just keep building out building onto out. forever. Yeah. Right. And so one of the cool things that uh, British Columbia has done that uh, I hadn't heard of as well to promote that better, that kind of value of those spaces you want to use is uh, the agriculture land reserve where you cannot build on prime agriculture land. So if so be it the zombie apocalypse hits, all the land could be converted to uh, agricultural use again, as opposed to destroying it all for condos and then you've completely removed all the productive soils that could be in those regions. And they've used that as a strategy to really cultivate development where they want it and uh, in the way that they want it. So for me, that was uh, one of the coolest things to come away from school with was that perspective on... uh, so what I what I took away from that is zombie apocalypse is going to make the world better. <laughs> <laughs> Preparation for the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. start yeah. start getting our food from here instead of California. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, no, that's a really interesting point. You know um, how uh, building outward kind of doesn't put the demands on uh, making things as as tight or as great in a in a local area. You know, and I I want to just relate this back to other art forms. Um, for example, like with movies, all that time, if your budget is too big, in some ways it actually, it kind of, you just, you, you throw money at problems. Yeah. Whereas, um, you know, sometimes independent movies end up coming up with the most creative solutions. I'm not yeah. saying all indies are, because yeah. some are just terrible, but, yeah. um, but sometimes people come up with these amazing ideas because they have to make that dollar go so far, Yeah. you know? And so, uh, you know, you start to get creative on how you'll shoot it or what you'll do with it. Right. Yeah. Um, and really I think, um, the interesting thing about a film budget is that it's actually really only good to give a really good film budget to a master filmmaker because an amateur filmmaker tends to not know what to, they can do yeah, with all that money. Yeah. Whereas a master actually knows because, and I would call a master someone who's made a lot of films because they've experienced yeah. what money can do into the extreme. Like yeah. when, when you look at, I mean, you just, 
name it, like Scorsese or Spielberg or, or um, James Cameron, you know, these guys who basically they take a dollar and they, and they make that go so far, right? Yeah. Um, and then there's these indie filmmakers who are forced to either be creative and it's kind of be creative or die. Yeah. yeah. You know, it kind of sounds like your industry is a little bit like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, you're getting your budget cut down. I mean, you got to kind of work with what you got. Right? Yeah. When I, uh, and to tie back to some of the original things we were talking about, I do uh, think a little bit of my frustration is my impatience about not wanting to stick around for the 10 years and thinking, you know, uh, looking at kind of what my parents had at my age and thinking that that was realistic for me to have as a goal. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that's a generation. Thing. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. not necessarily a profession thing. I don't oh, think, but, yeah. um, I think, yeah, I think a lot of us can attest bit. to that. Everybody, everybody doesn't matter what industry you're in. We're all a little bit, you know, we're all a little bit shell shocked a little bit our generation because yeah, I mean, you, you don't, you're not buying a piece of property for the same price you, you were. And, mm-hmm. and also there's, um, and, and I want to get in too far into this right now, but the way the world is set up right now, it wasn't set up that way before. Like, for example, getting people into school was just getting them into school was actually a benefit for our, for our economy and our culture. Yeah. Now it's yeah. not a benefit to get students into school anymore. So now what they, what's a benefit is making money off of school, people who are in yeah. school. Yeah. So, um, the world's changed that way. So it actually, yeah, it's not, we're not playing the same yeah. game, yeah. you know? And so for us to expect to have the same things our parents did at that yeah. age is, yeah. is unrealistic because the world is actually yeah. set up to use us in a different yeah. way. Well, I mean, it wasn't yeah. just to have the same things. It was actually to do beyond to, that, yeah. which yeah, is sure. like in the same means in which they did, which is like, that's, yeah. that, that's just not <laughs> the case. I mean, you know, our parents' generation made tons of money off of real estate. Yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's like yeah. everything's all bought up. So yeah. find a new way. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyhow, this just seems like a, a somewhat of a, well, you know, we're, we're spinning around certain topics, but oh, I think yeah. these yeah. things are anyway. Uh, so you were saying like, so this 10 year thing, um, you kind of had a goal to be at a certain place and it's kind of like, you're looking at that's maybe not so realistic. So what, what, what have you come to? What's your insights? Well, um, well for me, uh, just to kind of, yeah, per back too. I think looking at the things that um, architecture and film have in common are just that they're kind of the archetypal industries that when somebody identifies with being a creative person coming out of school, that is kind of the, the, where you get swept towards because those are kind of two big umbrellas that you can sweep into. And I, so I think there's a lot more room to diversify, um, especially nowadays, like it's become so easy. It's pretty amazing what you guys are doing. Just, um, recording, uh, these kind of things on your own on Sunday afternoons over beers. Like I, I think, uh, there's so much more opportunity now that the internet and everything has created for people to live these more, uh, unique niche lifestyles and unique artistic things. And, and for me, I, I fully believe that my dream job still hasn't been invented yet. It's becoming painfully aware to me that, mm. uh, kind of probably what I want to do, I'm going to have to make that job. Right. And so I'm, so what is your dream job then? Yeah. As far as you can understand it right now. So for me, uh, what I loved and what really came through for me was seeing how, I could translate my ideals of creating a thriving, exciting, healthy city and how you could put those out and put those in the media and then start to bring those to life. But right now there's no being that kind of advocate. You either kind of need to be the mayor, um, or have a really esteemed reputation, um, 
as an office, as, as one uh, generic kind of um, uh, um, rock star in architecture or something right, like that. Right. Starchitect. We. So, are there kind of ways to, to kind of do that? But I think there are much like some industries, uh, like like now radio has split into all these different industries, like podcasting and things like that. I think right now we've got the realms of, it's, it's cool to see the way cities are designed. There's, there's planners, there's architects and there's landscape architects. Uh, planners kind of, uh, do the kind of zoning around the city. These are extremely generic, but, uh, this is kind of the generic way of kind of looking at it. Planners look at kind of the organization and the zoning architects look at the buildings uh, and landscape architects do everything outside the building. That's the traditional model of looking at it. But since then, uh, urban planning and urban design are hybrid fields. And so those three industries, everybody thinks they thinks that they can do everyone else's job. Right. And out of that <laughs> hybrid nature, it's created uh, this urban planning and urban design fields that are kind of the in-betweens where you're getting people who can really look at the scale of a city and look at it from <clears throat> Uh, looking at the entire transportation network when you're just zoomed out, looking at that all on one page, zooming into what uh, each streetscape looks like uh, to the character of those streets or those plazas or those parks uh, down to like, even like how is your city represented um, consistently by the choice of bench that you've picked mm. how, how can, or street light and, and how you can put together a consistent palette uh, that has a uniform nature that kind of represents the municipality you're in. Right. And as well conveys the kind of atmosphere you want, whether that's uh, uh, exciting or traditional or peaceful or... Uh, but creating some kind of an identity yeah. for neighborhoods. Yes, yes those kind yeah. of... Yeah, is, is something that I really enjoy. Um, so I, I've, I've seen... A, I mean, the, some of the, the people I've seen have done a really successful job of branching off and breaking the mold of where I'm frustrated about pushing lines on the computer. Uh, the two examples that I've seen of people who've broken off and um, molded themselves in different ways are, uh, there's one guy in our industry who's become like the all-star drafter. You can't take 3D rendered images to the public when you're showing them initial consultation designs because they freak out and they think you've made all the decisions. And so you have to do that uh, with hand drawings. It's the only <laughs> way because then they feel like they're still welcome. You can leave so many gaps in it and allows, uh, imagination to, you really have oh. to transpose that in your mind of being in that space. Like it's, it's a very loose line drawing right. and you can insert yourself in that a little easier without it being. So when you have, um, a 3d designed image on a computer, all you've selected the brick color for the walls and people panic and, and then identify on those <laughs> small little details. And right. so there's this one guy who's an all-star at drawing. And so he, all he does is draw pictures all day of the, these hypothetical compu- communities. I think he does like one or two a week. I think he, he does super well and he takes a lot of vacation. That's, That's my dream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, another one of my best friends recently realized, um, that he was having a tough time with the conventional model of the industry right now too, and realized that his passion was photography, but his training was in landscape architecture. So became a self-taught photographer, was really talented and was really passionate about it. So just worked really hard at it and essentially just worked away at doing that in the office. And, and, um, and he's since uh, now started his own business and he is the go-to photographer for all the portfolio shots, uh, in town, uh, for when they need, photos to look at, 
uh, for to, to show off what the, the, their their space looks like. Wow! And and I've started to move into uh, being frustrated as a creative, looking for ways to be creatively applied because I'm not really getting that on the day to day basis like I thought I would be at my job. I've started moving into doing. Uh, creative videos and things like that. Like I recently, after doing the Freezeway teaser video for a design competition, one of my profs approached me and said, oh, you can design videos. Uh, why don't we do one out of my research? And it was just Ken Burns effect panning across images, the whole thing. So it wasn't yeah. really animated. I did throw snowflakes. Uh, there was, I, that was the one animated feature on there. But uh, uh, he's like, oh, you can, you're, you do animation. We should make a video out of my research. And we ended up putting together a little social media uh, stint um, about how you can manage stormwater to create more environmentally friendly communities. And that was something that I really enjoyed. That harnessed my creativity about producing the script, the voiceover, uh, putting together the storyboard, and then all the pieces that we later got somebody else to put the emotions on them. That was really exciting to think about how you can convey that to the public. I'm, I'm a really unique individual. I really dabbled in my, my background was in my undergraduate degree, I dabbled in everything from the social sciences. I think this is something we haven't come yeah. uh, is I, I dabbled in the social sciences, everything from like the, uh, psychology to sociology, like religion, philosophy, uh, environmental studies, geological studies, looking at all these kind of things going on in the world, all these so-called troubles that I just see as constraints that we can solve problems for. Like mm-hmm. the example of the uh, agricultural land reserve being a, a solution for how to build better cities. I, I think uh, there's lots of room for creatives to be able to look at how all these constraints can uh, yield solutions, but it's pretty tough to be at that table. And I think, but I think the voice that uh, the media uh, the accessible media forms of media like podcasts and things like that are really helping to spread ideas. I can't believe, uh, you talked about, uh, my freezeway video that has over 50,000 views now. Like I just put that on for a design competition, slap that on there. There's things I would change about it, but I think I'll lose my views if I reload it or anything. Right. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, I'm really glad I put everything I did into finessing that, putting all my perfectionist painful tendencies into making sure that it was as perfect as I could get it at that time. And it, that now it's been picked up. I've been interviewed, uh, all by people all across Europe, uh, North America. And it's just because I put that online on YouTube. Right. And so I really think I'm, I'm very optimistic about the way it's so easy to transmit ideas, um, throughout the world and how that is hopefully going to make this world a better place. Um, I just hope they, those ideas get out there soon enough because, some of the powers that be are to kind of using it maliciously at their disposal kind of thing as well. Right. But, uh, well, you know, I, there's so many things that I, I wanted to point out about that, but one thing I would say, and I mentioned this on an earlier podcast, um, when I mentioned this point out to me was that you're infinitely creative, you know, mm-hmm. these ideas only exist because of you. And so to yeah. remember that even if one idea does get taken or stolen or there's any type of malicious thing done with it is that, you know, even if you think it's your best idea, and even if it is your best idea, don't worry because, you know, there's always more to come out of you and you don't want to be too tied to one idea. Yep. But there's a couple of things that you're pointing out, which I think were really interesting. One is that, you know, I think that and that's part of our generation is we're, we're a little more niche. I mean, if you think about yeah. it, like people have built, um, 
basic fundamental foundational systems, right? And now I think where we have the opportunity to find is find the niches within those, you know, find things that are hybrids of stuff, find stuff that's, you know, I have a friend who, um, he got into videography in real estate, you know, which is a big thing. Experience the, you know, mm-hmm. you don't just look at pictures of yep. this house, experience the house and, and don't just experience it like a basic camera walkthrough, but you experience it like you're seeing the house as though you're there and, and using, uh, you know, using these glide cams and these, uh, you know, what are they called? Um, you know, the, uh, the flying machine, oh, drone. Oh, the drone. Drones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the flying machine. Anyways, <laughs> drone, drone shots that are showing the beach and the view and kind of giving you a, an idea of the holistic picture of that house and the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, um, they're making a lot of money doing that. Right. And these are the types of things where there's all this room. And I think if we, you know, and I harp on school at least once every podcast, but if we go <laughs> yeah. too traditional and we trust that to solve all our problems, yeah. I think we are going to get stuck in this rat race yeah. and, and we're kind of get weeded out because there's just so many. And if you're lucky, you'll kind of succeed in that. But most of us won't be lucky because it's a game of odds. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. you know, um, but, uh, that, that was one thing you pointed out. Another thing you pointed out was, um, you know, when you're creating this freezeway, I think what's so important about that thing is you're actually trying to do something that offers value and helps. You're not trying to do it because, I mean, maybe you have a, a, you know, an ulterior motive of, Hey, I want to be a successful architect, which is fine. But it actually, when I checked it out, I'm like, this would be awesome. Like, I like this, like, yeah, make this please. You know what I mean? And that's the thing is like, that's one of the things that Evan and I talk a lot about is you got to offer value. And I think sometimes um, we get so caught up in doing this great thing that we forget the whole point of why we do the thing, which yeah. is to offer value to help everyone else out to create an improvement. Right. Yeah. So those were a couple yeah. of things that I, I really noticed. What I think relate. is really exciting about the fact that, you know, this, this video was so has been so successful for you is that like, you know, this is, this is ultimately what sort of the, what the people want, you know, the people will get, I mean, you mm-hmm. get the, you get public interest in, in these things and, and, and what's so interesting to me is that, you know, you're, you're sharing sort of a, a vision for, you know, that you have two, two people and people are responding. I mean, that's, that is pretty much what art is, you know, (laughs) like you share something, you share a vision and people like it, people don't like it, you know, like Mm -hmm. that's, that's basically what, what we're dealing with. But I mean, it's just, it's, it's such an interesting medium in which you're doing that because, you know, you're, you're sort of, it's something that's really, you're trying to incorporate this into people's lives. Yeah. You know, like this is their, this is their city. These are their streets. These yeah. are, and, and, you know, I, I've spent time just like on different, um, forms. Actually it's been a while, but like, I used to always look at, um, uh, this, I think it was just like skyscraper page or whatever. It's yeah. just, just like all of these proposed, like, like skyscrapers that, and I mostly looked at whatever was being developed for Vancouver and just like getting so excited about like, Oh wow. Like, look at this, look at that. Oh, well, that doesn't seem to have much going for it, mm-hmm. but this looks really like interesting. Like it's, a, it's a fascinating thing because it needs to come like architecture. And I mean, and this is obviously for like, you know, buildings and stuff and, and you specialize in something completely different, but I imagine there's a lot of similarities in that, you know, there's, 
there's this blend of like funk, like form and function yeah. that you need to, mm-hmm. to combine. What, how, how do you find, what, what is that like? Yeah. Like trying to, trying to bridge that, that sort of gap between sort of, because like you said, something you can't, you can't put everything necessarily that you want yeah. into it because people will be like, Oh, well, Hey, I don't like the color of those bricks. Those bricks have to yep. be, you know, and, yep. and, and so you have to leave a little bit for people to fill in, but at the same time you need to give enough that that image can be filled in. Mm-hmm. But also to, I imagine there's a, an element of your own sort of voice, if you will, that yep. you want to have in that. So, yeah. Well, for me, that, that's great that you point that out. That's, uh, for me, I, I've reflected on that a lot and, um, yeah, I love hearing your perspective on it because for me, uh, it's so, I find that the more you research, the more analysis you do on something, the more clear it becomes of what it needs to be. The more you understand that problems, the less it's kind of like, Oh, it could be this, 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 this. It, to me, the more uh, research you've done, um, uh, the more obvious it is about what would be the best thing for it. And, uh, so it's interesting cause yeah, uh, I pr- remember previously having this kind of like, Oh God, what do we do with this space? But, um, uh, one of the things we talk about in our industry is that, um, what we're trying to do is, uh, unveil the authentic nature of what that space should or is be, should be, or what it is. And so not imposing things on that space, but really kind of looking, and this really happened with, uh, so I, that's actually where I think, uh, landscape architecture is a really unique discipline is because you have to be so, um, sensitive to the spaces surrounding that area, to the communities, you, you come in and you plunk down Disneyland or whatever, next to whatever, yeah. there's going to be no fit. But what really, what we really aspire and I think are very successful and competent at looking at is what is going on in that space and trying to unveil what would be, uh, the most authentic answer to provide in that space. And so we also kind of, um, this is kind of a whole different topic, but we often call it like unveiling the spirit of place kind of things like that. Or, um, another whole different term and different topic is, uh, um, like there's a the term called placelessness about creating spaces that don't have any substance or character or meaning or devoid of all that, which it stems from, uh, imposing your own decision, design ideas and ideals upon that space when it doesn't really fit the, um, when it doesn't necessitate that and it, and it's not authentic, right. as we say. So it's, uh, yeah, that's, a uh, um, yeah, I really had to have that conversation. I'm glad I got to articulate that to somebody cause that's, that's something like, I've only really, no, that's, my head. that's, that's so, amazing. Yeah. That is so cool. Like, like there's so much that in what you just said that I'm just like, Oh, like there's, we could, <laughs> we could get into this or we could get into that. I mean, we talk so much about, um, you know, structure which is to, to me, this is, I, I see a parallel where it's like, what does this, what does the space need by looking at, you know, the demands that are needed. So like for us, like we talk about story, you know, like what does yeah. a, what does a story arc sort of need? Like it's good to know sort of a lot of the rules or yeah, like what is required of, of uh, a story just like what is required of a space based on, I'm sure all sorts of factors, you know, like mm-hmm. what this, like what you're saying, what the space actually is. I mean, I love that there's that this sort of acknowledgement of 
well, what, what is this space as it is now? Like, what does this sort of space want, want to be, you know, there's a very sort of like, you're not, yeah, like trying not to impose your, your will upon a space, but to work with it. Um, which seems very different from film. If, if that is my assumption, then film, you have a blank, completely blank slate. You're not picking up a piece of the planet and trying to do something with it. You have a completely, but is it, is it like that? Or is it not like, I that? think that we could probably draw lots of parallels because I well, mean, yeah, you start from a script and you start from a character, you start from an inspiration, which is grounded in something. And then that, okay. you know, informs another thing. Yeah. And uh, sometimes you're working from a true story or whatever, but generally everything starts from the script, right? And from the concept of the script to the whatever. But there is, I mean, when you talk about having an authenticity to it, I mean, that's so, that's so true. I mean, it's, you know, um, when you're, I find when I'm writing a script, there's answers that come pop out of the page that are so obvious that they have to be that. There's not like, yeah. there becomes a point where it's almost like the creativity you can almost be like, well, I, I created that. But in some ways you're like, well, I almost didn't because the, in a way, the other thing I created is what caused this thing. And if I deny this reality, then it almost mm-hmm. is inauthentic. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, film then, you know, take it further. Then we start to go, okay, well now we're going to actually film this thing. We're going to film people reading these lines or saying these lines and doing these actions. And there's an authenticity for the actors. I mean, I think most actors will say, I get a script and they try to find what's authentic in there yeah. for them. And mm. then the director's trying to find what's mm. this authentic vision. So yeah. everything is kind of, if we, if we disconnect from each other, yeah. I think everything goes awry. And it's yeah. interesting to hear that in architecture, it's, it's quite the same. Yeah. yeah. You know? Cause they actually, uh, up here on main street, main and 18th, they, uh, they created this new kind of landscape architecture right on the corner there in 18th. And, um, for the most part, it's pretty nice. It's, you know, it's kind of a little like open hangout area, but they put this weird white poodle on top of this thing. <laughs> yeah. And everybody was like, what the hell? Well, why did they put that there? And then we all found out that it was a super expensive um, thing. And, and we're like, why the hell is there a poodle on Main and 18th? Like, like no one here has a poodle. Like we're all hipsters and artists and whatever, right? That's like yuppieville. Like a poodle represents kind of yuppie, whatever, right? Yeah. And, uh, and so it just doesn't fit. It's not authentic. And so everybody was like, get this stupid poodle out of here. And then we found out how much it was. And we're like, I didn't agree for the, <laughs> yeah. for the, for the city to spend money, money <laughs> on this stupid poodle. But it's like funny that you pointed that out because it was yeah. totally this weird inauthentic part of this yeah. thing. And it's like, why is that there? Yeah. And I have not yet, I have yet to meet a person other than maybe someone from Yale town who thinks it's good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not yeah. saying if there's was... anything wrong with Yale town, yeah. but yeah. like that belongs maybe in Yale town, but it doesn't belong on yeah. Main and 18th. A either. French bulldog should have been on Main and yeah. 18th. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what well, is interesting, the way that happens, that's, I'd love to articulate this to people. Uh, cause most people think it was the landscape architect who presumably shoved the poodle in there. Okay. And, but the way it happens is we get equally frustrated and screwed because we build this landscape and then a public artist. So what happens is any development goes into the ground. A okay. new developer wants to turn a couple, uh, a couple houses into a new uh, apartment building. And what happens is they have to, I, I'm not sure what the standard is here. If it's 1% of the budget needs to go towards public art. And I'm working on a project right now, which I won't name, that is equally, um, trivially throwing that money just on stuff because that's public policy. Oh, really? And, is that, wow. and it's like, uh, they're, yes, like they could be putting that into somewhere, but it, like, 
It's such a bureaucratic... It has such a good intention. It's supposed to support the arts community. Right. And those things, no matter... I mean, we, you say the poodle costs this much, and and in their defense, there's so many things that go through vetting that and materials and things like that that are, that are hidden costs. Like, you don't realize that... Um, like, if you found out how the real cost of all these other things, like like houses or whatever, like you don't realize that like how much of that is wages to people. Right. Like it's an astronomical amount of your house just went to wages or, you know what I mean? It was barely the materials or anything in there. And so yeah. there's a lot of hidden costs in that, but uh, it's a really out of sync process. That's really lost in a lot of bureaucratic things that started out of absolute good intentions that, yeah, we, it's funny that you mentioned that. Cause that's, that's as much of a pay, like the pigeons in uh, the falls Creek. Cause yeah. everyone's like, what the hell? <laughs> like, um, uh, those pigeons are, I thought they were sparrows or something. Or, or, <laughs> giant, or, or those yeah, giant birds sorry, in there. The giant birds. Yeah. I don't mind the giant okay. birds. So oh. that makes sense. So then they have this percent that they have to put towards the art. And yeah. so then the artist though is somehow not in on the connectedness of like, what does that community community need? Cause in that yeah. situation, it's like, yeah, maybe the artist came along and maybe, you know what, maybe it's a really nice poodle, like fine, but it doesn't fit. You yeah. know what I mean? And there's this disconnect of authenticity with the area. It's like, you know, and, and I think that, um, it's like, it's like saying, taking someone who, who really likes romance movies and then you give them a horror film and you're like, watch this horror film. You have to, you yeah. know, <laughs> it's like, and there, or, or someone who likes horror action movies and make them watch a romance mm-hmm. or whatever. It's just like, it doesn't, fit it's not what aligns and so it seems like that artist um no matter how good the intent was and obviously the intent of the city to kind of promote the arts which i I think that's a really great thing Mm -hmm. unfortunately somehow there must be some disconnect between them understanding like how can they use their art to actually like make it work within the art studio that they're in you know you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like yeah anyway well that's why i I mean, I, I've never identified myself as an artist. I've always identified it as a designer because I don't do art for art's sake. And so I, I have an immense amount of respect for people who just sit around and pick up a paintbrush. But my calling's always been more about uh, problem solving, like taking yeah. constraints. And so um, I wonder if it's almost co- like... T- I, 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 I feel... While I, I feel like people would call me an artist, it's really interesting that I've never really identified with that... Uh, so I, I think in art you can, you're kind of a little more removed from constraints and things like that and right. allowed to provide a social commentary and, on, well, yeah, here's the massive shift. You don't even have to produce things that people like, right? right. Controversy is, as uh, an ally, whereas, uh, controversy as a architect or landscaper can get you some publicity, but generally isn't productive to your right. business. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I mean, that's what we're really trying to navigate here and help other artists really and and other people in industry is like how do we find that balance between artistry and industry and and I think you know that's an example of where it's all artistry and and no industry and then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden you know you kind of end up with this thing that disrupts everybody you know and it's controversial in the sense that everyone talks about it and maybe that's what the artist wants and maybe it's kind of like like, I don't care. I'm against, you know, the people. I, I, I want everyone to get upset. I mean, that's why I created a poodle. Like, maybe that's what you're doing. <laughs> fine. But, you know, um, I think from, you know, when we're talking about uh, trying to actually have a career commercially, but also keep your integrity, mm-hmm. we're trying to find that balance between, you know, that's what all these conversations are really about is like, where do you, how do you keep your integrity and be authentic and yet, you know, and have a voice, but yet at the same time, pay attention and be in rapport what's what's going on around you because 
I mean, you could have an actor in a scene that says, I'm just going to do what I want to do. I, you know, forget the lines. I don't care that the, that the writer wrote that. I don't care what the director tells me. I'm a big name. I'm going to say what I want to say and do what I want to do. And, you know, and, and there's very, very few people that'll get away with that. Jack if, Nicholson. If, like Marlon Brando. But you know <laughs> yeah. what? They aren't really just going off the rails because there's a connectedness in them mm-hmm. back to the project. There's an authenticity which always brings them back. So even when they don't say the lines, they still are saying the essence, you know what I mean? But when I think when an artist doesn't even have that and they're not even on the essence, they're not even connected. It's like, who's that weirdo that's totally disconnected from this whole thing? It becomes a very self-serving thing at that point. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, anyway, yeah, I think it's interesting too, because, uh, like, uh, they say the quickest way to make the creative process or anything you're trying to do or fail at life is trying to please everyone. Right. And so I don't, I don't pretend to ever know where the poodle idea came from, but it could have having been in that industry and seeing some of the way that some of the conversations go, it could have been the developers like, Oh, we're, we're marketing this to old ladies or whatever. And we, we feel that uh, we want them to have dogs. We want it to be dog themed. That absolutely happens. Right. And so it could have been a constraint like that placed on the artist. Uh, but, um, at the same time, like, uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't see it as a, it's an only losing situation for that artist. No, right? you know, like, the like, other thing too is I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I live in this area, but I'm not in touch with everyone in here. I mean, I, I'm oh, yeah. probably mostly in touch with people who are generally in my age group. Right. And there's obviously lots of people that are older than me and, and, and many that are younger than me. So there might be people who love that poodle. They man, love that they poodle. think so, it's the greatest thing, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I just think it conjures up a certain kind of image, a certain feeling, which it's just, I found that it found that it seemed to stick out a bit like a sore thumb, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyway, Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, and the same, and that is, uh, all landscape architects in the city, I think share the, the feeling that those sparrows in Southeast Falls Creek bear no resemblance to the landscape whatsoever mm. or what was tried to be installed there. Right. And there's no cohesiveness. They are just, literally yeah yeah um uh yeah yeah there's no uh it's it's a very out of sync and not in a cohesive way which is what everything i can tell you because i I work for an office that was did a large part a lot of the design out there that's not that's out of sync with what they tried to create there was which was a very holistic cohesive environment uh not punctuated by jarring visual features like that that uh uh, uh, yeah, uh, whatever critique they're trying to make are not very obvious. Right. You know what I, you know what I really appreciate is, and, and I, maybe you can say something about this, but is when, um, places, um, and try to incorporate, and I've been noticing this a little bit more in Vancouver, they, they try to incorporate, uh, Aboriginal art. And I think that's really important because, um, you know, I think that in our history, right, is that, you know, I, I think that there's kind of this Western culture that's really kind of almost cornered out the Aboriginal yeah. part of our, our heritage, you know, and it is our heritage and whether we are a part of it by blood or not, it's our heritage. Right. And I think that I don't, I think sometimes people are like, well, why is it like that? But I think it's good because in a lot of ways, I think it brings back some of the important history that we can so easily forget. And I think future generations will tend to, um, you know, not be reminded of this stuff. And, and the reason why I think so is because, you know, the other day I was, I went camping up at Cultus Lake and, uh, my friend had a couple little kids and one of the little kids was riding in my car 
and we were waiting to go to our picnic or whatever, and she's sitting there, and um, I still have a car where you actually roll up the windows. It's like a really <laughs> super basic yeah. car, right? And she was like, how do I open the window? And I, and I showed her, and, she, and I rolled it, and she was like, well, she's like, well, I've always pushed a button. She never even knew about rolling up or down a window. Now, you know, obviously my car is not the hottest car in the world, but to her that was fascinating. And it dawned on me that like, yeah, she might never experience mm -hmm. rolling up a window. Like when I was a little kid, you know, having an electric window was a luxury. You know, we had luxury yeah. cars and, and that was a luxury thing. Yeah. But, um, you know, for most cars, even your friends and family, you got in, you rolled up the window, mm -hmm. you yeah. know, oh, yeah. With yeah. manually. And I remember you had to tell me to lock the door too. Right. Yeah, was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Wait, quit trying to sell my car here. <laughs> no, yeah. The hilarious thing is I drove the exact same one. Yeah. I sold it last year. Yeah. But I love that car. Actually, I, you know, I don't know, maybe it's just the nostalgia in me, but I love manual. I like, I like actually having that hands-on touch of everything. But anyway, my point is, is that this, this young kid who was like only seven years old or eight years old or something, um, had never experienced something like that. And I think like art that kind of brings back and reminds us a little bit of where we came from. And, um, you know, I think is, 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 is valuable. And I think that's an element that probably must uh, play a part in decision-making every now and then, I suppose. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because I feel like, uh, something out of my perspective, um, it's interesting. I love the first nations art that you see in Vancouver. That is for me, it's kind of a, a huge contrast from, uh, in Alberta, although, though the thing that I'm having an epiphany about right now is that, um, I feel like the first nations was much more of an integrated part of the community right. in living in Edmonton and Alberta. I yeah. feel like, whereas here, I feel like that's very not part of the city. And all we have left here is that we slap up First Nations art, and that is the only reference of it, which I think is sad yeah. uh, that it's kind of, it's more just kind of lip service here. Though, um, uh, I really like that. And I, I like your idea, like talking about that, I, I, that is absolutely, I feel like in a more authentic origin of art. And, and for me, uh, like I like the, the Pemberton Music Fest, I loved uh, all the, the ta um, tags for if you're in VIP or, or whatever, they all had a piece of First Nations art on them. Right. Were, uh, yeah. Which I was, noticed that. I thought that I thought was incredibly tastefully done. Yes. Um, so I, I, I thought that was a, um, a pretty way, cool way to reference that and not make just like, oh, Pemberton is is rock. So we're going to have guitars on everything. You know what I mean? It was so much more thoughtful. Uh, but it's, um, but I think it's almost in a way in a replacement for how much that's been kind of dismissed from this kind of, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I mean, I think though it's better, it's better to have it than to not have it. You know, yeah. it's uh but yeah, I mean, you, you know, it's, and you point that out, it's, it's kind of a sad, it's a sad thing. I mean, to think, to think about that, I mean, uh, you know, um, and, and I, think, I think that's true. And I think the thing is, is that, you know, this um, kind of um, in, like art is, I think, one of those mediums that can really be so inclusive, you know, like we can all kind of come together through it. And I think that um, it's even if it is lip service, that's and that's the best we can do as artists. Um, at least providing it is better than not. Providing yeah, it can it, be know? a starting point. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. As opposed to uh, not being there, kind of thing. Right, because I mean, once you forget about something like out of sight, out of mind, kind of thing, it's yeah. it's, you know, when are you ever going to be confronted with it again? You know, yeah. you don't have to, right? And I think mm -hmm. that is part of the challenge yeah. with Vancouver is, 
Um, I think that's why we do have a bit more Aboriginal art in our cities because it is a little bit out of sight, out of mind. Mm -hmm. Most, uh, you know, Pemberton has a huge, um, you know, um, part of, you know, that culture, but in Vancouver, you know, you don't really see that part of the culture. Yeah. 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 Anyway, I was just, that was a curious point for me. Yeah. Well, so, uh, I loved your comment about the rolling of the windows for me, a couple, I had a similar experience that, that I was surprised was a big thing was a significant thing, but it really opened up my eyes. I was dating one girl and this was over a decade ago and she was like a year and a half younger than me. Like, uh, but her best friend was my age, a uh, year and a half older. And she was obsessed with the Harry Potter books and I'd never read them. And she was giving me a super hard time, like really calling me out. She's like, what? Harry Potter's everything. And I'm like, and, uh, and her friend, and I was like, what? I was like, everything. Well, and like, yeah. And I was like, what? No. Like, I was like, that's strange. Like, uh, amongst my friends and everything, that's just not like, it just kind of missed me. And yeah. like, and her friend backed me up. She's like, no, that's not our generation. And it, that was, that was a huge moment for me. I was like, wow, we can, be, we're, we're like almost a, only a year apart and there can be that big of generational differences. Sure. And for me, it's going to be, it's mind blowing. So I also, another thing that makes me really sensitive to that is that I have a brother who's a decade younger than me. He's a full 10 years younger than me. And they say like, we're the last generation who will remember having been in high school. Like people didn't have cell phones then. Right. Like people didn't connect. People weren't taking pictures of each other in the change room or, you know, right. like, uh, sexting wasn't a thing or anything <laughs> like that. Like there was no Twitter. There is all, or, or uh, not Twitter, no, um, Tinder and things like that. And I'm, I'm worried about what that's doing to human relationships and, and how that's going to change the, how it already has changed the way we interact with each other. Because people we're we're the last generation that realizes what it was like to just sit down without your phones and talk because there were no phones you, where you had to rotary dial somebody yeah. or, uh, all those other kind of novel things like uh, rotary. How long were you still in well, the rotary? Like, like, yeah. <laughs> we actually, I actually had, when I was a kid, I had numbers memorized. Oh yeah. I had no, phone I mean, numbers memorized. Yeah, I still have yeah, some of them memorized, yeah, you know, but like, you know, now, like, it, um, you know, and I'm, I'm guilty of it now because I've, I've actually, you know, most people, I don't know their number anymore, no but, but I think generations I've noticed, uh, people who are younger than me, they don't know a single phone number. If they lose their phone, <laughs> it's over. Like, they don't even know like, their own number. Like, they, their next best thing is like, I got to use some other social media platform to figure out how to get a hold of everyone else. Because, and if those go down, yeah, <laughs> no, and, I mean, yeah. And, and every now and then, like, I'll see, you know, on Facebook, uh, a friend or someone will be like, hey, like, drop my phone into the ocean. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, if you want to stay in touch with me, here's my new number. Yeah. Like, here's yeah. my new number or whatever it is, right? Totally. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we used, I remember, I mean, we used email, but now, like, way more people are contacting you over Facebook and stuff. Which is, yeah. um, you know, it's funny because I remember I wasn't really making the transition right away. Like I still used email and people were like, Hey, where are you? And I'm like, or what's going on? And I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, I invited you to my thing. I'm like, you did. I know. And, and they're yeah. like, yeah, I sent you a group invite on Facebook. I'm like, it's like a group. It's like the laziest way to invite someone. Yeah. I used to, when I invited someone to a party, like everybody showed up, but I used to call them all. I used to be like, Hey, Listen, Saturday night, nine o'clock, bring some beer. <laughs> We're having a party. And they're like, awesome. Okay, great. And they're coming because you had a, a talk, right? Yeah. But like these group invites on Facebook, it's like, 
you literally just clicked a bunch of guests and then, you know, it's that's so, the effort. You, and you, then you, most clicked, of, you moved your finger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and most people put maybe when like, they don't even commit. They're like, it's like yeah. so weird, you know? But yeah, I mean, yeah, things are, you know, things evolve that way. Right. So our communication, the way we connect about things is totally changing. And, and what's scary to me is that technology is only accelerating. Like mm-hmm. for me, somebody described it to me as if you, could you imagine you lived the last hundred years? what you would have seen, like pretty much, uh, like maybe back up a decade to the hundred years, you would see like almost the invention of the car, two world wars, the invention of the computer, the internet, cell phones, all that in one lifetime. Yeah. If we live a hundred years, landing we're, on the moon. Yeah, landing on the moon, we're going to see be like nothing. Well, yeah, we'll see way more that like they say technology is only accelerating. Yeah. And so you could imagine hypothetically that we could see a hundred, if that was 10 significant, we could see a hundred massive events like that in, in the same, uh, lifetime. So that leaves me a little unnerved, but a cool thing that, uh, people have told me is like, Oh, well, you'll, you're going to be the last of the analog generation. Right. So, which is going to provide you a pretty unique perspective on the world and the way people relate to each other. Well, I think it, I think it does. You know, I actually think, um, I think it's, you know, it's certain, it's good that, you know, a a couple guys, and I'm glad you're on this, you know, got together and started talking about this stuff, because I think our perspective and the fact this is being recorded is is valuable, because there's a, there's an appreciation for the manual. There's an appreciation for manually being in control of something. Like, cars are going to get to the point where you're not even driving them anymore. Mm -hmm. They're just on a track. You go to sleep, you get in your car, you go to sleep, you wake up, or Mm -hmm. you read a book the whole time, You, you know, and... Um, one day there'll be a generation that doesn't know what it's like to drive a sports car and shift gears, you know, and that kind of, you know, and and to think like, man, like that's going to be something that people I think will look back and go, you got to do that. Like, what was that like? You know what I mean? And, um, you have to go to like professional, like course or something to just to drive a vehicle. Yeah, totally. You know, they'll be like, yeah, exactly. And that's, and, and very few people will experience it. Right. But I mean, there'll be other wonderful things in the future that are, you know, that we're moving towards, which will be great that these types of things will free us up for. But I think, um, you know, with art, there is, I think the reason why I appreciate the manual is the manual elements of things is that in art, you really are it isn't automatic. The more automatic it gets, the more the same it gets, you know, but when it's manual, the way you shift the gear, when you shift the gear, the rev point you hit this, you know, the way you feel a car is much different, um, you know, than the way someone else does. Right. And the way we do things is what's so fascinating. I find about art because even when we don't do it the optimal way, there's an art in that, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? But like, um, you know, automatic tries to get it almost kind of done in an optimal way, but what's the optimal way really, right? Mm -hmm. Like you'll never drive an, uh, you know, you are not going to drive an automatic car and you're going to, and it's going to rev like right up close to the red line and then shift. It's going to switch gears way earlier. Right. But when you drive manual, you can, you can really get into a low gear and let that car really, you know, feel that pull and that Mm -hmm. traction. Right. And, um, you know, uh, also if all these cars are automatic, Here's another thing. I'm just going off a little bit, but have you ever, have you guys ever been in a sports car, like a really powerful sports car and someone hits the gas Oh yeah, yeah. and, and you're just get sucked back to the seat and you're like, and you're like, it's the G forces and everything. Like it's, it's a, it's a crazy experience, right? In the future, that would be something that, you know, you, you just don't get to do. And I think like, you know, small town kind of mentality is people like their fast cars. They like their power. And I think there's a kind of 
sometimes anti-technology is kind of because we like that manual we like to mm-hmm. feel you know we like to still feel the car feel whatever we're doing right yeah like I, I i write on a computer almost every single day i've written for 1463 days in a row never missed a day yeah and almost wow. most of those days in a row have been on a computer and the last i don't know two weeks every day i've just been writing by hand and it's a different experience to write by hand and mm-hmm. to deal with i was writing with a shitty pen today and i was writing for like an hour with it and then i was eventually was like I just acknowledge, I'm like, this pen's a piece of shit. And I threw it away and I grabbed a new one and it wrote so smoothly. But like the, the just, it's, it was a different experience, right? I had to push harder with the first pen. The next pen, I didn't have to push as hard. There was just a different experience of the writing experience, just writing, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyway, I went off on a tangent, but that's, that's my thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So, um, uh, all right. So we're talking about all this technology. So how do you think technology is affecting like your, your industry? Um, uh, well, hmm, technology. Cause there's like a manual user ability and then there's kind of a, you know, like an automated type of situation, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I think the biggest thing was the shift of the computer cause everything, it, my, all the bosses that I've had had to draw everything by hand. Right. And if you dropped, if you spilt your coffee on it, you had to start from scratch. Like you were in there for another three hours, <laughs> you pulled in another drawing and you started drawing away. Like, uh, for me, that's mind blowing. Um, and so the advantages of the computer were infinitely obvious when, uh, that came around was that you would have backups indefinitely. You would have infinite precision, uh, to the nth degree or whatever. Um, but I think that some of the biggest things in the future that what some of the things that we've already seen happen is it's made it so much easier to visualize the things that you're building. Like right. nowadays, like one of the projects I'm working on, uh, it's four towers. It's, it's a, a giant parking lot of a mall and it's four towers going up. And, um, we've basically looked inside and out of everything on this project. And we're, we're in the very, 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 very early stages of what this project would look like, but we've already looked at it from every single angle inside and out. And that was not something that you could do when you're drafting on paper. I mean, right. and then when somebody was like transposing about what they thought it would look like in 3d by hand, there was a lot of room for, uh, you could really, uh, brush over the details you didn't want to solve or the difficult parts, or, uh, you just didn't draw that area that it was difficult and things like that. So it's, um, made it a lot easier with that. For me, I, I, I see the biggest shift that's coming along is that right now it's crazy. We, so the way all the drawings go out and this is kind of cool. I didn't realize this before I started. Uh, was was basically we provide a thumbnail sketch in a little section of what the paving looks like meeting a curb or what for every intersection of materials we provide a little thumbnail doodle and expect you to just build the entire project from that yet uh there are uh pipes and things like that running throughout the project and there's all these overlapping things that are conflicting and you're right now we're relying on someone to catch that and so i think the moment the entire industry goes 3d, like that we build our projects in 3d, uh, all those things will be caught when we lay out our layer of, okay, this is what the buildup of, you know, gravel packed to this density, to this depth underneath the sidewalk to stop the sidewalk from cracking and things like that. 
And then we'll realize the conflicts that are coming up. In a, oh, oh, no, we've got this over here that that's going to intercept and conflict with. I think 3D is going to catch a lot of those problems. So I see that being the next, uh, yeah, we have to switch there. But right now, the, the restraint, uh, as I've been told, is that the contractors who are developing it don't have access to a 3D means to be navigating while trying to construct it. Mm. They need to have paper that they can have out there while they're digging in the mud and things like that. Uh, that um, they can print off a new copy if it gets destroyed, but that's just right now the easiest means for them to do that. Soon, I think we will draft the entire project uh, inside and out in 3D, and uh, uh, because now they've ultimately catch up. Uh, now they have uh, one of the typical programs we use is called Google SketchUp, and it allows you to like quickly draw some sa- shapes and push and pull on them to explode and then stamp textures and things like that on them to in 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 an incredibly short period of time, whip up an entire neighborhood building or uh, you name it. And so that's become a really easy tool to model these 3D things. And that's a very typical tool that we use to 3D model anything for public presentations and things like that. But they now recently have a thing that you can actually review it on your phone. And so that to me is a game changer uh, that we're just witnessing the start of. Wow. Um, So... But in terms of other technology, I also think technology is going to make it easier. I've also heard about uh, an office that is purely, they realize that most people don't even want to come into work in the office, like the younger generations. And then they're like, well, that, that allows us to save on not even having to buy an office right. in that space. And then, you know, people have computers. So why don't we just license their computers and then we could save on that. And then uh, in return, they can just have more flexibility and work from wherever they want. And to me, which is everything, that's, that's my dream is to be able to work from a laptop anywhere. And so, uh, to me, I feel like that in terms of capturing the labor force will, is a, um, strong business model. Well, yeah, I mean, there's so much money that's, um, spent on just brick and mortar situation, you know, like having a place that you have to pay rent for and has to be massive and all that stuff. So changing that is huge. And I think, um, you know, that's, it's interesting to hear that with architecture because film, the way that's going too, is, is not mm. unlike that either. I mean, people mm. who uh, want to experience the film before they make the film, they want to, you know, everything's so much more about already experiencing it. Like, like working out those kinks beforehand. I think, um, you know, the older generations of film was a little bit more trial by error. Okay. We have this idea. We think it'll work. We're going to go try it out and we'll see what happens and hope for the best. Now there's a lot less guesswork, which I think is good. But I think also it comes with certain problems, like at least in film, I know that because there's less uh, risk taken around certain things mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. like um, there's kind of a, a, um, a tendency to, to almost go towards certain safe things, you know, like safe consistencies. And I think um, those, you know, the top filmmakers, the people who are really trying to push the medium, they end up pushing it and everyone else kind of follows in tow. Mm-hmm. But, you know, those movie of the week directors, and I'm not saying all of them, mm-hmm. but like, you know, and, and very like commercial, like, like not, they're not high in artistic integrity, but they're high in commercial and industry integrity. Yeah. Um, they tend to kind of follow the way the business is going. So movie of the weeks tend to look like a picture image of the exact same one that was made last time. And mm-hmm. they just kind of get replicated. Right. Yeah. But the, 
you know, those Scorsese's and, and Spielberg's and James Cameron's and people like that, mm -hmm. they push the medium and then everyone kind of follows in tow with that, like yeah. Avatar, right? Yeah. Um, now that Avatar was done, everybody goes, okay, now we have this new breathing room we can kind of venture into, but until it's done, it's kind of like the industry doesn't want to step outside mm -hmm. of it. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, and it's uh, I think actually uh, to relate that actually kind of more to the background of your podcast too. In terms of the integrity, a lot of one of the big constraints that's happening for um, for me, I'm frustrated. I'm like, why are we producing this? You know, especially in uh, sprawling cities, why is it just single family residential going on for forever? Why are we continuously developing out further and further and further away? And it's not to the fault of. Uh, even the city's ideals or the designer's ideals, the, the big thing is coming from the banks will not lend you the money to build it because it's not proven that you will sell, uh, right. this ideal of this walkable community and things like that. And so for me, that was surprising to hear that we harp on all the time that, Oh, designers are not doing this or the city's not doing that. Or, but, um, to hear that the actual limitation was stemming from the financial uh, sector, uh, which, is, which is interesting. So if we only focused on dealing with that, we could actually probably be a lot more effective in producing change and things like that. So, uh, yeah, it was just, and then it's tough because, uh, especially, um, landscape architecture is such a high ideal of environmental and ecological awareness and sensitivity and, uh, design, but, uh, which means that we often strive to never, try to not do greenfield development and uh, try to only produce more what we could call sustainable by producing more higher density spaces and things like that developments, but we're often limited by um, the nature of the project. And so it's kind of a really sticky situation where you can kind of be stuck on, you know, that's the project and you might need it to keep the office open. And, and then a lot of people use the, um, saying of, oh, well, if at least we're going to design it greener than the next office will. Right. And so uh, we might as well be uh, doing this kind of thing. And so it's really a uh, um, challenging line to walk. Yeah. No, I mean, it's definitely, it has its balances, like finding that, that line between, you know, what what is required, what is being asked, what sort of limitations are being put on you, and then coming up with creative solutions to resolve those. I mean, Brandon's often said, you know, when you're writing, like, when you're writing a script, like, you are, you are rewriting that script until it finishes shooting. Like, uh, you yeah. will, like, you are yeah. never finished rewriting that thing until, yeah. like, it's in the can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's all, and it's all finished because there's just all sorts of things. I mean, even before, like, even in pre-production, before a movie, even, like, you know, they, they have this script, there's something about it that, you know, at this point, someone has said, this is good, like, let's, let's move on this, let's start to develop this, and you're rewriting in that stage. And then yep. there's the actual filming process and who knows what could end up happening yeah. through that, depending on the size of the production, whatever, yeah. suddenly something needs to get cut out or something needs to be condensed. Something mm -hmm. needs to be, to get across, you know, in a way that it wasn't originally put in. Yeah. Right. 
You know, it's um, it's interesting uh, with screenwriting too. Just to kind of piggyback your point is, <clears throat> depending on the timeline of the project and the demand of how quickly it needs to get out. Yeah. Um, there is a whole bunch of different elements that come into the rewriting process. For example, if you're dealing with a high concept that you, the mo- the major priority is that the concept will. Um, basically someone else will write that concept before you write it. Yeah. You might not write it as good, uh, but they'll yeah. come up with it first. Yeah. It'll kill yeah. your, yeah. your, your idea. Um, that's, uh, but then you're pushing. So you're really just racing against time to get it out sooner. So then the quality of the work is not really put on as much on character development and story development yeah. and depth and stuff. It's more put on, let's make this story exciting and hit all those demands so it can get done. Yeah. Whereas if you're working on, say, a story where you're not so worried about the concept being done before that, mm-hmm. um, you're dealing with kind of more the social, economic, political things like uh, what was interesting about it today, you know, a few months down the road is not what's interesting about it anymore. It's yeah. one thing that I've encountered in yeah. the script that I've yeah. written. So yeah. like... You're, you're like, whoa, like we're, we're almost writing an entirely new script in a way, mm-hmm. but it has to evolve because it's almost like if you don't, it, it, it dies because it's old news now. Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'd imagine like, you know, when a project is in development, um, it could probably kind of be like that as well where, you know, mm-hmm. well, yeah, and from what you're saying, yeah, I think you just have to be so agile and like, uh, that is where you see the small offices being more adaptive and be able to pivot so quickly on those kind of things. But yeah, especially a movie that takes years to come to fruition. Right. Like uh, for me, that what flashed into mind was the the ants and the bugs life produced at the same time. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. There's a few movies that have like come out over the years that have like been this like the same. There was like Volcano and Dante's Peak came out at around the same time. Right. Um, there was Armageddon and Deep Impact I know, came out yeah. at like the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Every now and then, it doesn't happen very often, but like. Well, and you know, it, it's it's interesting too because I mean, you know, the collective consciousness are people coming up with these ideas, like multiple people coming up with these ideas, or are these ideas getting caught wind of and then splitting, and someone's taking it but taking it in a different way, but it has connected to the same similar. Kind yeah. Of, concept plot point you know yeah um <laughs> yeah it's uh it, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing um but i think it, you know like when you look at like avatar that was uh you know james cameron apparently that I, that idea was 10 or 15 years before it actually came to be because technology had just not caught up to what it could be yeah but i wouldn't be surprised if that first story it'd be so interesting to read and i and know what that first story was about because I would not be surprised if it evolved yeah. into being more about, hey, our world is being destroyed. Let's let's kind of make this movie more about a comment on how, you know, our world is being exploited and destroyed. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Whereas back yeah. 15 years ago, that might have not been a really, it might not even been in it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know? It might have really just been Dances with Wolves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but with avatars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Um, okay, so I want to go back to one other thing too. Um, unless you had a question, Evan. No, I I, I was just gonna ask you what the beer was. You want to talk about the beer? Okay, we'll talk about the beer before I get into this question. So you're gonna like this name. It's called the Summer Smash. <laughs> like that? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's great. Sure. Yeah. Well, you were really excited about the beer, and I was excited about the name of it. Um, so this is 49th Parallel, and um, I think the abbreviation was ESA. But they told me it was an experimental Hefeweizen. 
Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. But it's very light, super summery. It, um, I don't know. Like, it doesn't seem like a Hefeweizen to me. It seems no. like a lager. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know it's I mean? really... Because maybe they mislabeled it. Honestly, like, I have to tell you, everyone behind the bar was like, we don't really know what it is. It's an experiment. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, no one could really give me a straight answer. But we think it tastes pretty good, so... <laughs> yeah, I tried it, and I'm like, you know, it's super hot day, and this will be a, a good yeah. refreshing... What do you guys think of it? I, I think yeah. it's great. I mean, uh, I think 49th Parallel is, uh, I mean, they're top-notch beer maker in the city. Yeah. Gypsy Tears is like... That was what I was going to get otherwise, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a constant, like, staple. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. if you're just looking for something that's just going to... Get you drunk at 7% alcohol. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But also be, like, so, like, incredibly good to drink yeah, at the same so time. Yeah, it's so tasty, that one. Mm-hmm. So. That's my favorite uh, 49th Parallel beer, but this one I don't know if um, our listeners can actually get, unless maybe they do it again next summer. Yeah. Maybe this podcast will promote it enough, and they'll be like, "We need to make Summer Smash again." <laughs> but apparently, it Does was. Anybody remember what was in it? <laughs> <laughs> well, no one seemed to know what it was, so hopefully they kept the recipe. <laughs> but I like it. I, I found it really refreshing, super light, easy to drink. Um, yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's only so four something, four point seven, I think percent. Mm, well, uh, you know, sometimes those are good. Yeah, 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 and then we don't get all you know slurry at the end of this. Yeah, <laughs> not like when we get into the Belgian triples oh, or something like that. Oh, those are dangerous. Yeah, yeah, we've done like eleven percent beers and oh, yeah, gets into trouble. Yeah, yeah, podcast, yeah. Start, you know, forgetting what you're saying halfway through your own sentence. I feel like I, I feel like I do that regardless almost yeah. every episode. <laughs> that's just your thing. That's just my thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, just the early Alzheimer's. <laughs> yeah. 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 So um, I was gonna I was gonna go back to uh, education, um, and you know, it's a hot topic for me as Evan knows. I bring it up all the time, but uh, education didn't really prepare you for the industry. You know, you were talking about that, like uh, how you spent a lot of time doing creative work, doing these certain things. And then you got into the world, the real world, and you're like, what the hell? Like, why didn't my education align with what I'm doing? And I actually, I do think that um, the education is slowly <laughs> beginning to start to catch up where people are starting to realize that we need to be integrated into work while we're learning. Mm-hmm. We need to be dealing with the industry. You can't, we're not, we're, we're beyond learning from a book. And then catching yeah. up when we get on the job. Yeah. We need to be on the job while we're learning. Like, mm-hmm. like even if we're not literally doing the job, we need to be in reality with it, you yeah. know? And it sounds to me like you got out and you realized that your education wasn't really in reality with the industry. Yeah. And uh, the argument I've heard is that they say that, well, you have time to learn how to push lines or whatever. <laughs> Once you get to the desk. Okay. Well, so, that makes sense. That's a good point. And it, yeah. And I, I think that does make sense. And, and my design background has made me an asset in the office and they want you to have that underpinning when you're moving the lines so that, uh, you know where to put them and, uh, kind of thing about uh, Cause there's, there's, there's a lot of design decisions made at every single incremental change, right? Like you, the original concept was doing this thing. And so when we have to adapt 50 times because of power lines or whatever reason you can know like, Oh, you know, we were trying to create a dense network of trees here because we were trying to create this really insulated, quiet, private space. So, uh, maybe I'll shift everything to allow all these trees instead of just knocking down half the trees on this side. This okay, so is let a me, let weak me just, example. Let me yeah. just interrupt you because, yep. okay, so old model of education is we start at the bottom, you work your way up. 
but newer generation model is that we have geniuses. We have people that are literally geniuses. They're 14 years old. Like they, they know more than most adults who have lived like 60 years who have been masters educated, you know, doctors educated. Mm -hmm. And, um, they're more, uh, creative, more, um, intuitive, you know, they, they have, um, you know, whatever. And th these, this is happening, right? Yeah. And so well, I think part of our model is it actually restrains people from actually being geniuses. Oh, you know for sure. I mean? Oh and yeah. There, there's actually studies online, which, um, I, I don't know the exact link at the moment, but they did tests with children and they found that actually when children are taught a certain way, it unleashes a genius in them that our current education currently suppresses. Yep. So what I like, yeah, it's true. You'll learn how to push lines, but also if you were more prepared for the reality, I mean, you could be practicing pushing lines already. Yeah. Like, like why do you have to wait until you get there? Is mm -hmm. my point. You know what I mean? But I get, yeah. I get the, I get the concept. Yeah. I just feel like it's like an old, you know, I feel like we're behind the times. You know I mean? Oh, well, uh, it's random. It's uh, interesting that you bring that up. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly, uh, painfully aware of how behind the times we are. I actually was diagnosed in since grade three with a learning disability uh, in school in terms of like auditory learning and reading and writing, uh, since grade three, every few years, all the way through one of my masters. Right. And, um, for me, the giant difficulty is that we're expected to learn by just sitting in these lecture halls and getting stuff, uh, and picking up information that way. And I get absolutely nothing out of that. I am a rare person, uh, visually, spatially, they were saying that a learning disability is when you have a, a challenge between, like there's a giant discrepancy with, between what you're good at and what you're bad at. It doesn't mean you're stupid or anything. It's uh, that, that there's just massive discrepancies. And so for me, uh, they said my visual spatial stuff is in like the gifted 99th percentile area, but my reading and writing is dead average. Right. And when I hear that stuff, it's just like, when I do visual spatial stuff, it's black and white. It's night and day. Like I have no trouble picturing anything. Uh, and then, or like walking inside, outside, upside down, throughout a building, uh, rotating objects in my mind. No, no problem. Uh, whereas the reading and writing stuff has been something I've struggled with my entire life. And the school model of education has not evolved in any way. And now the worst part, the, the part that makes me the angriest is, uh, not to be so negative uh, on this <laughs> podcast, but, uh, is you come out of school and then you have to do all these registration exams and you're not even prepared for them in any way. You, you, you touched on a little bit of two of the exams, the rest of them, you just have to pick up yourself out of learning and, and out of a textbook, which for me, uh, is going to take me like forever. It feels like, right. um, and I thought that was, I thought that painful part chapter of me getting into this industry and learning what I needed to know, which is an ignorant assumption. There's always learning that needs to be done, but I thought that was going to be out of the way and I would be prepared to write those exams coming out of that three-year program. And there's so much to learn. Right. Um, because in large part, it's an awesome profession and you have, you're, you are taking in so much information and that's why, uh, it's such a unique industry because you are really the, um, touchstone between so many different industries you're wearing so many different hats that that's what makes it a really exciting job to be at. Uh, and so you're, you're, you're juggling between so many things. There's so much stuff to learn that they can't teach you at all in three years. And, right. and, uh, so it's unfortunate, but, uh, I'm, I look at what, uh, one of my, um, 
friends was going through massage therapy and that's like a two-year program and you end up you finish the program fully prepared to write the exam and then hopefully you pass it you write it immediately after graduating and bingo you're registered whereas me you need two years experience minimum which i understand that as see that as a necessity but you also have to pass all these other exams which are to ensure that you know how to run an office and things like that and um obviously there's a lot more liability associated with building staircases and landscapes and things like that, which it would be easier to kill people with than, than potentially, uh, massaging uh, them. them. <laughs> yeah. Not, not to, uh, negate the value of that, but, uh, obviously there's more, more liability, more threat, uh, involved. And so more responsibility involved in picking up those things. But yeah, I don't know. I think that's a, a tough thing. And, uh, I think, a lot of online things are becoming the means and it's, um, surprising that that's not, uh, promoted. I, I think that's a lot of the way of the whole, um, I see a lot of like the animation stuff as being self-taught and, and actually, uh, to be perfectly honest, I learned a whole lot about how to make the last video I did with my prof that I was mentioning out of just a little short online co- course that, uh, talks about how to make videos and things like that. And it basically just did a little, very good brief overview summation of how to make a, what makes a good script, what makes a good uh, video, what makes a good animation, what all uh, just articulated that. And it, it was so much more valuable than a lot of the stuff that I was learning in education in school. And so I think it has, it was really yet to evolve. And, and when you brought it up earlier, um, for me, I, I have this ideal I'm so frustrated that education is not, or, or you brought it up in, uh, that, uh, for me, I'm frustrated that, uh, that school's not free. I feel like anybody who's pursuing higher levels of education only makes smarter decisions in life. And especially in a country where healthcare is paid for by everyone, you are only more educated. People make smarter decisions. Uh, they're taking better care of themselves, which is a huge advantageous, uh, a lot of advantages in a culture where we, we all pay for each other's healthcare, um, collectively. And so I think if it was effective education, that was, uh, and so if the, I think if, if the country was paying for it, it would probably ensure that it was more towards creating jobs that are necessary and things like that. Ed- education on, uh, on things in demand. And, uh, I think you're also, but if, I mean, if it's all purely utilitarian focused about getting, this person into this job, then you're, you're not really making way for the cultivating the geniuses that may see the whole world in a different way. But, uh, for me, that's one of my beefs is that, that school, I don't understand why that's not free because collectively we are all better off with everybody more educated. We're committing less crimes. We are, uh, looking after our resources as a country better. We're looking after our spaces I see for anybody I know who's achieved higher levels of education. Mm -hmm. And so that's always been perplexing to me and why that is not something that is part of our culture. Well, yeah, no, it's an interesting topic. I mean, you just opened Pandora's box Mm -hmm. to talk about a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. But um, (laughs) Next week. (laughs) I was just thinking uh, one thing I I would say on the, you know, just for the education side, I I feel like... um, now more than ever is the rise of the type B personality more than the type A personality. Interesting. Huh. And the reason why is because if you look at the history of um, industry, and Marco, who was our guest last week, um, yeah. you talked a bit about this, but 
um, if you look at the history, I mean, basically, you were rewarded for hard work. You were rewarded for time in and, yeah. you know, production and, uh, and, and whatever. And that's a very type A personality quality, you know, just get it done. And, and it's really like, I mean, even in uh, Russia, you know, they had a, they, they had a, a grunt worker who was famous for like basically doing more work than everybody. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't remember his name, but you know, and that was kind of that, that's really the history and mentality where we came from. But yeah. type B personality is like, what's the difference? If I spend 15 minutes and I get what you get done in three mm-hmm. hours, did I work harder? Did I like, what does it matter? Yeah. Like all that matters is that we get the thing done. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think, um, you know, you have an entire society that's really based on, and we're educated in a way where it's like, okay, I just got to get through these three hours and then I'm done my job. I know. Right. And I think that there's a a really important thing, um, right now, currently for our technology level where I have a barista there that can give me my coffee because right now we don't have a machine that can make the coffee quite the way the baristas and everybody can make the coffee yet. But you know, you go into some restaurants and you can order your food and you order it on a machine and you, you, yeah. you go and you pick it up and whatever. And it cuts out a whole mm-hmm. person working hours. Yep. But that person who would have that job is still in our society. So then you go, well, the t- I, I think it's the type B personality. And this is why I bring this up because I had a conversation with someone who's in school right now mm-hmm. and I, and they, and they, and they were, and I, I'm like, I, I run a business. I, you know, I, I, uh, basically the way it works is I get commissions. I make money off people who buy my courses and whatever. And then, you know, and, uh, some days I make no money. Some days I make a shitload. It just really depends. Um, but they were like upset with me and, and I, and I said, well, what's the deal? And they said, well, you know, you don't like, I feel like I work so hard and you don't really work hard and it's not very inspiring. And I, I thought about it. I said, what an interesting thing. You know, they're, they're like hours in time in hard work, you know, and they look at me and they look at me as like lazy. And I think it's so interesting because I, I make more money or do more, uh, theoretically produce way more than you produce. I work a fraction of the time you work. Yep. But the thing is, is like, isn't that better? Isn't that the life we're supposed to live where it's like, like, you know what I mean? And I could work that hard, but like life is short, you know, Mm -hmm. like, and so I I thought it was like, what a fascinating thing. Their value system is all based on time and effort in work, work, work. And mine's based on what's the result Did we get the job done. Yeah. You know what I mean? Effort versus productivity. And I think that's our, I think that's where we're going. I think our generation and these future generations, Mm -hmm. I think, we're lazier, but I think it's good. I actually think it's well, good that we're thinking. You well, know? I mean, and there's been studies recently on productivity that have shown that like, well, I mean, that whole eight hour nine to five model is a little bit skewed because they're basically finding that people are really only doing like one and a half, two hours <laughs> of work within yeah, an eight hour day, like yeah. of actual real, real productive work. Right. So it's like, so then I've what, never done that. <laughs> so, so then what's the, well, like what's the other six hours all about? Right. right. Like it's, so it's, you know, it, I, I think it's, I mean, there's so many changes going on. I mean, it's a very exciting thing. I mean, it's a very tumultuous time. Like so many people that I know are just like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Things are just kind of so crazy. Like I'm trying to make sense of this thing that I'm doing or trying to find a way to, to, to do the thing that I do and make it fit or make it work. And, and people are coming up with such 
creative solutions and inventing their own, basically like their, what they do. Right. Um, and what's incredible is that pretty much the world supports, will support it. You know, like we, it, we valid- in- it validates like hours in, like, like you're somehow a hard worker if you clocked in for X amount of time. That's what I'm saying. Or the longer yeah, you stick I didn't mean to, did I cut yeah. you off? No, 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 no. I, I, I was trying to understand what you were saying in, in relation. Oh, I thought I understood you. I might have not understood you. Go on. Sorry. No, I mean, I was, I was, I was really just saying, is this going to be the moment that everyone forgets what he was going to say? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> it happens like once a podcast. Yeah. Now. yeah. No, but, but, you know, basically what all I'm saying is that, you know, like that, that whole system, like there's so many things that are all like the, that are all coming to light. There's so many things you know, the pennies dropping on so much of this stuff where it's just like all of these old models, all of these old systems, it's like they're, we're f- discovering in more than one way why they're broken. You mm. know, it's just like, well, this is broken because these jobs don't exist anymore. This is broken because people are really actually only working two hours out of the day, mm-hmm. like of, of that eight hours. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, so what are we really putting our time into and, and what is, what, what, are, where are our values actually, you right. know, like what, where are we putting our values and, and, and just sort of where, how I think that right now we're just in this time where we're asking these questions. A lot of these things are shifting. We're yeah. questioning a lot of these these modes of thinking. And it's, and it's a very difficult, it's, it's a very difficult time because there's so much uncertainty right now with so many things. Like we don't know, like everything's up in the air right now. Mm -hmm. Like absolutely everything is up in the air. We don't know how everything is going to fall. Right. But I mean, it's also kind of a really exciting time to figure all of that stuff out too. I think it is exciting. And then, uh, I think, um, yeah, I think what you're pointing out too is, I mean, I think as long as we value like work and actual productivity over busyness, because like, I don't want to live a life. And I, and this was a huge realization for me a few years ago. I, I just really sat down myself and I said, I don't want to live a life where I was busy all of it. I want to live a life where I got some shit done. And if I get very little done, it, it's not going to make a difference if I was really busy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. cause and I think that this thing is that like in, in, in school, like, and I've seen this, uh, you know, and I don't mind, like, I don't mind doing a job where I'm working for eight hours or whatever. And I'm doing that, but I don't look at that to me as like getting more work done. Mm-hmm. I just look at it as like, that's the nature and dynamic of measurement and whatever. But I think, um, uh, you know, I think our kind of the whole thing about hours in, like, for example, like one thing on, we both went to the same school, UBC. And I remember being in some courses and I was like, okay, great. We learned all this stuff. I could have learned this in 15 minutes. I didn't yeah. need this two hour week. lecture. Yeah. I yeah. didn't need it. And so I thought, what a waste of time. I was like, yeah. like, like, it's not that it was a waste of time. Cause I get that that's how they felt they needed to do it. But like, like, and you know what, there's this kind of babysitting I found too, which yeah. was like, well, I don't really believe you're going to read the book and really do the work. So I'm going <laughs> to say it out to you yeah. or whatever. And it's like, well, 
if why am I in university if you mm-hmm. don't believe I'm going to read the book? Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to read the book. Don't tell me what's in the book. Why don't you tell me your wisdom and experience? Because you're yeah. the live person in front of me. Mm-hmm. I'll read the book too, and that will help me, you know, fill in. And if you yeah. need to refer to the book on a few things, great, do it. But like, you know, um, and and I, I just think like there was this kind of moment for me where I realized like, well. You know, I, I educate myself every day. I watch, you know, I'll watch educational videos online, like, and I spend at least, usually at least an hour a day just educating myself on various topics. And I, there's this fascinating amount of information you can get online, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And uh, and you don't necessarily need to go to school, yet school goes, well, you need to get the degree. And it's like, well, structure it so, like, you can get the degree in a quicker amount of time getting the same information. It's not like, like don't take my time from me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Cause yep. if I learn the same thing, who cares? What yeah. does it matter? If I get yeah. the same thing done in a fraction of the time, what does it matter? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast and the, uh, the interview person, uh, I think graduated from, I think it might've been law school by throwing a massive kegger at the end <laughs> of every semester and it, it, everybody could come, but they had to print off all their notes from the entire semester so that that person could read the textbook and then read everybody's class notes and then pass <laughs> everything <laughs> and focused. And then was probably the most like, popular person like around too. Genius. Yeah. And so, I mean, there are ways to break it, but, uh, yeah, we live in a world, unless you break out of the contemporary work model. Yeah. If you put in, if you work, if you can do twice as much in half the time as everyone, then, and you, you're continued to expect to do work at that pace. You just do four times as much as everyone, mm-hmm. which is, and that's what I'm experiencing. I can be incredibly efficient at my job. And that's, that's the big challenge that I'm having. Uh, but, uh, that's the nature of being paid by the hour. And it's really, and, and I've been having these conversations with people, but they're like, well, so what are you going to do in an alternative as opposed to being paid by the hour? Right. You look at a job for any construction job and you say, I think this is going to take me this many hours and like that, that's what you have. To, that's the foundation point. And then you say, and I'm going to attach this dollar figure to those hours, dollars per hour. And then, and then the offices need you to need a body in a desk, but the, the most, um, well, to justify having the building, yeah. then you need a, you need a body bodies in the desk to justify it. But it's like, don't you see the buildings actually hurting you in the company? Like having the body there, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I, I, you know, it's an interesting time, like Evan points out, because it's a time of internet businesses and internet teaching and stuff like that. And people are building multi million dollar businesses online. They don't even have an yeah. office. They have two employees, one to do, uh, you know, human relations, the other one to do some management online. And they're all working out of their own homes. Exactly. <laughs> and they have almost no overhead other than their yeah. website and, and the marketing dollars they put in. Yep. And, um, you know, and, and you take these big gigantic companies and they have, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars of overhead just mm-hmm. to keep the thing going. Yeah. So, you know, at the end of the day, when you start thinking about what you're breaking away with, yeah, sure. There's an independence, mm-hmm. but I think, um, you know, I, I would not be surprised if the way things go is if someone ends up basically internet businesses evolve enough to a point where a corporation actually becomes an umbrella of many internet businesses mm-hmm. and kind of manages them. So people don't have to do so much of the own, their own, uh, entrepreneurial work. Yep. 
In fact, I would almost start that idea, but I'm not there yet. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it would be a good idea if there's a CEO out there who goes, yeah, that's a good idea. Take it. Run with it. <laughs> yeah. Because I think that's the way the world's going. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think on a positive note, and to say this in an empowering way, anybody who feels that way, we already live in a world where that's possible. Right. You, you have the potential to go online and do that and qu- quit your job and go do this and not subscribe to the uh, paid by hour BS game. And yeah. so the opportunity is there. It's just waiting for more people to do that. And right. so I know it, it's not it's far from easy, but it's there. There's yeah. no reason. The only thing is it's just not uh, as conventional right now in uh, what, 2016, but it will be or it whatever. It doesn't seem quite as safe either, which is also a yeah, but I think, uh, but I think we are also, not only are we in, incre- like in all this uncertainty, uh, I think another generational quality is it, it, um, another ability to accept risky kind of things as well. Like there are more people who are just like willing to live out of their backpack and kind of, th- or, or, you know, give up less in some, it's some, there, I think there's two camps. There's a more flexible camp of like learning to, to bootstrap it and just kind of go, uh, shoestring it or whatever and live, um, very repressed life to, to kick off their business or whatever. And then there's others who are so attached to their phone that they can't function without anything. But, uh, I don't know. I think I'm excited. I think there's more opportunity than ever to do those kind of things. And mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's not certainly not easy, but I don't think we can use that. It's too tough as an excuse anymore. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's you know it's becoming a point where you just have to take education on your own terms. You know, one thing that a lot of people have told me is they say I love what you do, but I couldn't do it, and they say they couldn't do yeah. it because they wouldn't get out of bed to like educate themselves. They just oh, wouldn't okay. do it, right? Yeah. They wouldn't ha- they, they 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 say like like needing to kind of have something I have to do, like a boss or whatever. Yeah. And I, I always think that, that I think that's a profound awareness. If you're aware of that, cause I can totally relate to oh, yeah. I'm the worst employee for myself some days I have to say, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I think, um, uh, you know, this self motivation, one thing I've learned about self motivation, if I could leave anyone with a positive on this podcast, cause I think we just talked about a whole bunch of great stuff is that just find your why. That, that, that's the key for me. I find like when I'm connected to why I'm doing something and I know the reason and I, and I, and I believe in it, that it can work, I'll I'll be endlessly motivated. Mm -hmm. But when I don't believe it can work and I don't, and also if I don't know why, one of those two things are in, I do find it's hard to get out of bed. I do find it's hard to get, you know, connected to my purpose. And, um, like for me, writing and educating myself is kind of like eating breakfast or eating lunch. It's yep. not like a, yep. you just do it because you know it's good for you. Sometimes you're not even hungry, but you you know I should probably have a meal right now. It, it's kind of gotten to that point for me. Yeah. But I would say it's best when I when I know why and I believe in it. Yeah. You know, um, and uh, you know I think I think when when any student doesn't matter if you're in traditional education or you're just doing your own thing. Yeah. If you're curious and you believe and you, and you know why you're doing something, yeah. nothing's going to stop you from being educated. Nothing's yeah. going to stop you from learning. Yeah. You know, I remember I had a curiosity for a little while about remote control cars. I learned everything about remote control cars. I learned, I can, I built my own remote control car. I just learned how to do it because I was so curious and fascinated about it. And then I learned basically exhausted what I could learn to the point where it's like, okay, well, yeah. there's these little details now and it's like, eh, whatever, how far do I want to take this? 
But I think that everything's kind of like that, right? If you, if yeah. you're passionate about it, like you learned, Evan just talked about in the last podcast, he learned jazz guitar online, you know? Yeah. Blues. Yeah. The blues, sorry. Yeah. Blues. Yeah. <laughs> I mixed yeah. it up. Yeah. And then you, you, you base that into your entire guitar playing. So, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I think, um, we don't need to wait for permission. I think, um, yeah. We were educated a little bit that way, but I think um, we can break away from that. We don't need to wait. We don't need someone to tell us what to do, and we don't need to wait for permission. We can give ourselves permission, and we can decide. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we certainly have all the tools we need there really to do it. It's not the conventional means, and I think, and I realized for me that's one thing as I was kind of waiting for permission to, for my boss or my parents or whatever to give me permission to do what I wanted, and that's kind of... Uh, been a big realization is that, you know, there's never going to be a time when all the stars are going to align. It's never going to be easy. Uh, but yeah, you really have to break away to do the things that you want. And in terms of uh, when you say the why, uh, some of the best advice that I've ever got was um, the most, and I, and I think uh, as a side uh, tangent to this, I think hopefully we're raising in a, in a culture that is growing up with, I'd say a lot of substanceless stuff, like the media and things that we're watching. I'm hoping that that pendulum of a completely um, uh, information will hopefully (laughs) swing back and that we'll be swinging, moving into the next generation. Every generation swings, right? Right. Uh, From like the free love to the super strict to the, (laughs) and then back, you know what I mean? The pendulum is always swinging and I'm hoping that it'll swing back into a culture that values... um, self-awareness and things like that. And some of the best advice that I've ever got was you need to understand what drives you, what motivates you, what gets you out of the bed in the morning, what is it you want to accomplish and what do you value? So for me, it's yeah about being able to control my own schedule and mm-hmm. having a job that's kind of fulfilling and things like that. And, um, if it's, if we're getting close, I have a couple notes to kind of yeah, yeah. wrap Bring it up. things sure. out. But yeah. for me, I, I took, um, a couple notes on like some of the things that, uh, I've noticed, uh, have made me successful I, over the last few years. I, it's really hard for me to understand where the success for it, uh, it seemed like the project that I created took on a life of its own and it's hard to understand why, but in all my time reflecting on it, it's, um, as one of the things we touched on in this, uh, session was that, uh, we do, we are moving towards a niche culture. We've seen so much generic stuff all across the world in every facet of everything that we do, especially artistically. Uh, as you mentioned, the rise of, uh, uh, technology has made it really easy to synthesize and make everything the exact same mm-hmm. in terms of like the, the, that medium has made it easy to, to produce the exact same material, right. uh, as opposed to it not being the analog. And so, um, I feel like my project really tapped into a niche that kind of cultivated a unique facet of something that I think people really grabbed onto. Um, we, one of the the many points that we talked about was value in this thing. And it's ironic that that's the number one critique about my project is that, oh, it doesn't make money. And I'm like, how can you see that it doesn't make money? Like, uh, I actually presented it or actually told the guy that that was the response I got to the guy who, um, oh, this kind of ties into this podcast. Well, is the, the guy who recently, um, was the guy behind producing the, making the gondola up the, um, in Squamish, yeah, uh, up to the top there. I was super against that project. I'm, I'm wondering. I was super against that project until I went up and did it. I thought it was really stupid that they would put a gondola up in the mountains and that only people who hike deserve to be up there. But uh, when I went up, I went and tried it. It was actually really good. But I presented him to, to him. I did. He seemed like this guy. He presented. I, this was after I saw one of his presentations talking about his 
project and how this came to be and how it was such an amazing success. It was an economic driver for the community. Uh, it right. made him a ton of money. I was shocked at that. Um, <laughs> and yeah, uh, that it was actually so economically su- successful. Like I, he was talking about how they had to take out a couple million to, or like, I think it was $3 million to get that, uh, off the ground. And I was like, Oh, how long is that going to take you to pay that off at, I think it's $30 for a trip up or $10 for a round trip or $10 just down if you hike up. And he's like, Oh, we'll pay it off in a year. I'm like, you're making $3 million a year on this thing. Like that's a brilliant. And so I see the brilliance fan from his side of the things, but, and then I showed him, I've got this idea. And then I shared with him that I have this idea for the city of Edmonton that, you know, they could build this unique means of getting around that would completely change the way people perceive that city that would completely change the lives of the people that live in that city because they'd have these walkable corridors to, that would, uh, in the, in light of this obesity crisis we're facing, uh, where people are not getting their recommended hundred minutes of physical activity per day, where that could be simply accrued by walking 10 minutes or five minutes, uh, or no, 10 minutes to and from the bus stop on weekdays, um, that people aren't getting. Uh, I was like, if we can only incorporate it into, into our culture. And so in terms of the value for me, it was so obvious the value that would be uh, interjected into the city, but it's mm-hmm. been really hard to, to uh, convince other people of that. It's just such a broad thing. But, and then the last thing um, that I really would like to share with people is that I think the success behind uh, that idea that I came up with and shared was the passion I put behind it and the positive nature behind it. People really latched on to a really positive idea out there. And so artistically, if you're, uh, it's fun and it's, uh, it's great to capture all the facets of the human existence and all the range of emotions. But, but, uh, if you can capture positivity and excitement, that is a really infectious emotion that, uh, I think is a reason why I think people got so excited about my project and my idea. So I, I hope I could always encourage people to continue to carry their passions forward. Mm. Those are some great final points, man. Thanks for sharing that. Um, do you have any final points you want to add to the bunch? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I think, you know, authenticity uh, is something that's just the, the word that's ringing out to me at, at the moment here, just in terms of, you know, th- how what, what that all means to be authentic. I mean, within your own voice of what you're putting in, but also the authenticity of, of the thing itself, you know, like it's the, that's an interesting idea that, that you kind of put forth today that I thought was really, I'm probably going to stew on that one for a little while. It's Mm -hmm. like of the thing itself, you know, not, not just some concept of me doing this thing, but you know, what this thing is without me, Mm -hmm. you know, with me removed from this completely like what is this it's it's a really interesting it's a really interesting way to to look at a creative project you know um and and yeah and I think from from what you're saying like with with your project and and with this you know this greenway through through Edmonton that you're that you're developing like I I think it's so great and and I think what brings people into it is when you invite people into your vision, you know, like when you invite people into it, when you, when you make people a part of it, um, it, it can do such extraordinary things because people want to be a part of something, you know, people want to be associated with something that's kind of bigger than, than any one of us. And, and I think that's just an incredible gift to give to people. So if, 
there's ever an opportunity to bring people into something that you're passionate about, not just like put it onto them, but bring people into it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that you're giving an incredible gift. So yeah, yeah that's, cool. yeah. that's it. And, and people really jumped. Uh, one last nugget was that, uh, people, the moment they realized I was doing this for free and just as something out of I was just passionate about that really rallied a lot of people to help me and opened so many doors. It's been a crazy networking opportunity because people just recognize like, wow, you're doing this. Like you're really pushing the dream, man. Let me help you out. Like, yeah. As opposed to like the usual defensive, what do you want from me? Kind of uh, no way that you, people would react. What to do you, you have that, to give? Yeah. That when I met you and you, well, I mean, it wasn't until the next time we hung out, but that you told me about that. I was like, that is really fucking cool. You know? And I think when, when, you know, and that, that's a genuine response. And I think, um, I, I would not be surprised if most people had that. I mean, what a cool name, the freezeway, you get to skate around town and go whatever you want to do. And, and you're interacting with people and you're seeing people and you're out there in the world. And, um, I, you know, I'm just really going to piggyback on Evan's points. Cause I think they're the really, you summed it up. I mean, um, you know, when you invite people into a vision, I think it gets people off their asses and gets them doing yeah. stuff. Yeah. You know, I mean, I teach filmmaking and, and most people are like, well, you know, I can't go and call this person and ask them to do it. I'm like, do you know what they're probably doing right now? And you know, we, we have this idea that they're out there working <laughs> and they're yeah. doing all these wonderful things. They're probably sitting on their couch watching Netflix, eating Doritos or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you call them up and you say, Hey, I got this film. I got this idea and it's really unique and I'm passionate about it or whatever. And it's a real vision. Mm-hmm. It's not just some car- carbon coffee or something else. They're going to jump out of their seat and be like, yeah, I can't wait to be involved with that. Yeah. You know, and, um, it's like, uh, and that's just a film, but this whole thing, I mean, this is, uh, changing the landscape and I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's wonderful. So I think vision and looking at how you can include people, as Evan said, is so important. And, um, yeah. And you were talking about the authenticity of it. And that was another thing that really stood out with me. And I'm just really seconding your points, but through my own filter, which was, what is this project without me? And uh, I really like how you said that about, um, you know, you look at the environment and you assess what naturally authentically should be there. And I think, um, that's so cool because it really takes away the ego from the whole situation, which is when you were talking about that, Evan, that's the thing that I really took away from Mm. what you guys were both saying about it was just, yeah, it removes my ego. I don't need to be so much anymore. Now I just need to find out how I communicate within what's already there. And a, a script is a lot like that too. I mean, it's uh, as an actor, as a filmmaker, as whatever. I mean, you don't have to recreate it. It's already kind of built. And now you just have to have decide how you're going to work with what's already there. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a wonderful message across all mediums of art. Um, so yeah, that was, that was really what stood out with me. Yeah. Is there anything, and, and we'll leave it to you. You can finish off if you want. But was there any point in this conversation that you could leave the audience with that just a summary of like any, any one point it doesn't have to be a whole summary, but just anything that really stood out to you that you would want to leave people with about maybe what you discovered or what stood out to you, which is a value to you. Um, for me, I guess taking the time to just sit and think about it for me, uh, I think the biggest thing I, I really appreciated touching base on was the importance of being reflecting on your own values, self-aware of kind of what's important to you. Uh, really, I, I think we live in an age of almost unlimited potential. You have what up to a hundred years to potentially do what you want with your life. And I think the most important thing is to be continuously steering your life towards the where you want it to be. 
And so uh, I really think we don't live in an, an age uh, where we can make up excuses anymore for why we're not doing the thing that we want. Obviously, times are tough and there's challenges, but uh, I think if you have a dream and you have a passion, you will find the people to support you along the way in making bringing that to fruition. And so uh, for me, it, it's just been incredible to see, have the absolute demonstration of that uh, over the last couple of years, seeing a thesis project come into a pilot project and then be echoed around the world. Uh, that I think was so popular because it, it pitched a positive message. And so the news is out there pumping out stuff to, uh, smear to the public every day. (laughs) And so I I think they were really happy to latch onto a positive story about, uh, um, how we could do things differently. And so I, I think everybody has inside them something, a purpose or a gift that they were brought here to deliver to the world. And so I, I hope that uh, people can, for me, it's inter- that, that antith- authenticity aspect that we talked about. Really, I think, I'm not sure if that's everybody's design process. I think that might just be me uh, that views it that way. I'd be really interested to actually ask some other people about what they think about that. But that is just, that's so innately t- my means of how I design. And uh, uh, I guess... Yeah, it would be really fascinating to see if other people look at it. Well, I think that's even better because now what you've done is on this podcast, you've you've shared a rare gift with everybody that I think helps everybody across every medium. Because, I mean, we're both artists in entirely different mediums, and I think we both connected to that point. And I think that's the point of this podcast is that we get other artists and, and people here and we, and we share our process and we go, Hey, I can refine my own a little bit better, you know? And, uh, so thanks a lot. I mean, that was huge for me. Yeah. Thanks for bringing your insights. <laughs> like it's been like a real fresh take on, yeah. cr- on creativity for us, like with your, with your experience. So thanks a lot. Oh, yeah. it's been uh, awesome for me as well. Yeah. So Matt Gibbs and check out the freezeway and we will put it on the end. That was our show for today. Thanks a lot for listening and being a part of this. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe and share with your friends and family. Or you can learn more and message us at www.thebndpodcast.com. Oh, and make sure to leave a comment and rate us on iTunes. That will really help us out a lot. It definitely will. Thanks.